Uh, tonight, what I want to do in the uh, brief time that we've got is to make an observation, provide a hypothesis, and then on the basis of that hypothesis, uh, speculate on a way forward. And my little disclaimer is that I'm not doing uh, Bible teaching. I'm spitballing with you on a kind of historical theory. And uh, if you think that the observation doesn't stand or the hypothesis fails to explain uh, or the whole thing's a disaster, uh, then feel free to disagree with me, knock yourself out. Uh, you're more than welcome. But it's a hypothesis, an uh, observation, a hypothesis, and then a way forward. Ready? Let's go. Here's the, uh, here's the observation. My observation is that in the last decade or so, there have been a spate of books, articles, uh, resources and, uh, and conferences and so on, encouraging Christians to resume uh, what you could broadly call the spiritual disciplines. Uh, in which I'm kind of including vaguely uh, prayer, sacraments, liturgy, personal devotions, and general churchiness. Uh, so consider the following uh, titles, A Common Rule, uh, The Benedict Option, The Imperfect Disciple, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, 12 Rules for Life, Finding Quiet, My Story of Overcoming Anxiety and the Practices that Bought Peace, uh, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Powers of Habit, and Religion for Atheists. Uh, all these books have been written in the past 10 years or so. Many are written by evangelicals. Some have been written by unbelievers. And they all point, I think, to a wider trend in both church life and beyond, which is interested in, in explaining and exploring this material. Uh, if it hasn't come to a uh, town near you, then let me just let you know that the cool kids are into it and it may be on its way soon. That's the observation. Okay. Uh, and the question I want to explore with you is not the weather question. Uh, so the weather question is whether this is a good thing or not, whether this is a move that we should uh, embrace or resist. Is this something that's going to uh, build or unravel the, uh, the saints? Uh, is this a threat to the gospel or a servant of it? That's not the question I want to answer uh, tonight. I want to uh, look at the, not the weather question, but the why question. Uh, why is that happening? Why is it that this is renewed interest in the last 10 years, uh, 10 or 15 years or so in these matters? Now, of course, uh, the answer is that there's multifaceted, the causes uh, of any historical phenomenon are multifaceted and complex. The true answer is going to be long and boring and not fit in the genre of a TED talk. Uh, so allow me uh, to stop killing this talk with a thousand qualifications and come out swinging with my central thesis. Uh, the hypothesis is this, that, those, uh, that there have been dramatic changes in our interest, our use broadly, our interest in disciplines and liturgy and churchiness and so on because of radical changes in our culture. Uh, in the churches, it is a symptom, I think, of the fact that we've moved from what I call the battle for relevance uh, to what I call the battle for resilience. Uh, let me see if I can explain by a brief history of God and Australia in the last hundred years. Now, we've not got the slides. Is that right? All right. Excellent. I'm going to be vivid and create word pictures for you uh, while you miss out on this. Uh, so here we go. Uh, at Federation, that's 1901, Australians identified as 96% Christian. 96% uh, Christian, 96% identifying as Christian at the time of Federation. Uh, by 1954, that figure is down to 89%. So 
So that's if you can kind of imagine that. Uh, if the graph comes up, you'll see it. A kind of gentle but obvious movement in one direction. And then uh, the most recent data, as you're probably aware, shows something very uh, dramatic. Between 2011 and 2016, those identifying as Christian in our country go down to 51%, which according to McCrindle is the biggest drop of anything ever measured in the census. It hasn't been slow and decline, uh, slow and steady, but sudden and dramatic. Uh, if you look at the graph, if you could look at the graph, uh, you would be as depressed as I am. But here's where the story gets interesting. Uh, this is a story of decline, but it's a story of decline in people identifying as Christian, which it turns out has very little relationship to the health and vitality of the churches. See, while the the graph is heading slowly and then dramatically uh, to a point where almost certainly by now most Australians do not identify as Christian, the churches have had a life of their own. Uh, While that's been going down, there have been moments of decline and moments of vitality. The churches have been, in the best sense of the word, all over the place. Uh, So, for example, in the post-war era from the 1945 to 1963, while Christian identification is going down year after year, the churches themselves experience this moment of kind of revival where they're growing on almost any indices you care to measure. So that if people were having conferences between 1945 and 1963, the main questions you'd be looking at in seminars is how do we accommodate all the growth? Uh, The recent dip, as I say, from 2011 is quite dramatic. So if I can put it to you concretely, what happened between 2011 and 2016 uh, is that 950,000 people who said they were Christian in 2011 said they weren't in 2016. Where did they go? You guys are Christian leaders. What did you do? What happened to them? How did you lose 950,000 sheep? Shame on you. Uh, Well, in fact, no, take it from your laughter that you realise that's not what happened. It's not the case that 950,000 people were in 2011 in our churches worshipping Jesus, uh, you know, serving the poor, reaching the lost in Jesus' name, proclaiming the gospel in the neighbourhood and planting churches. And then between 2011 and 2016, 950,000 of them thought, ah, forget this, I'm going to become an atheist. That's not what happened. Now, what happened is that between 2011 and 2016, 950,000 people that in 2011 said, oh, what are we again, honey? Was it Church of England? In 2016, felt emboldened by changes in our culture to say, do you know what? I'm just going to put no religion. I'm just going to say we're not anything. Now, see, when you put it like that, a whole lot of things that, uh, that do matter to us aren't actually what's going on. These aren't people who are on the whole deconverting or people who are uh, leaving behind an active faith in Jesus. The, actually, the, cha- the churches themselves have remained fairly constant in that same period. But it is a change and it is one that has consequences for what we're doing in evangelising Australia and planting churches. Let me uh, try and explain. Uh, The great poet Les Murray once described Australia as roughly Christian. Uh, Australia was once a country, great uh, Les Murray phrase, was once a country in which most people thought of themselves as 
basically Christian in ethos and outlook. And the job for evangelicals was to distinguish between nominal and active faith. The work of evangelicals in a culture like that was to persuade a lot of people who, when you said, are you Christian? They put their hand up and said, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what we are, that they needed their sins forgiven to be born again, to have uh, a personal relationship with the Lord. So 1959, Billy Graham comes to Australia and almost every message he, he gives is to say to Australians, you must be born again. Do you know how many times the New Testament mentions the new birth? Two and a half times, right? Not a big ticket item in New Testament. Important, but not a big ticket item. That phrase, Billy Graham uses it all the time. Why? Because when he looks at the MCG and and, and says, guys, I'm here to persuade you to become a Christian, uh, everyone's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's our religion. Well, I was baptised. Presbyterian or something, and my uncle was a bishop or something. I'm the thing that you just said. And so Billy has to push back and say, no, I didn't ask you for your identification. I want to know, have you been born again? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Billy says, are you a Christian? The average Australian uh, till recently says, yeah, I was baptized. I went to church school or something like that. Is that what you mean? And Billy Graham said, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, do you know the Lord? Uh, I was going to demonstrate this with a, uh, a picture. Let me just uh, give it to you. I think from Federation until uh, about 2011, let's say, uh, you had a circle that, say, that represents Australia. And the circle is, is a roughly Christian nation. And within that bigger circle, you have a smaller circle, which is active, evangelical, alive Christians. See, what happened until recently is that Christians occupied the place of being the intensive form of the culture. Uh, Christians were that thing. I think we've got, oh, we've got the photo. In fact, you can not look at me and look at the back. I can see what you can't see. Uh, <laughs> Christians were the intensive form of the culture, which meant we were annoying. But we were annoying in a particular way. Because we represented to the culture the thing that people thought maybe they really should be if they were behaving slightly better than they were. Uh, To say that you should be active in your faith, that you should be at church praying, worshipping Jesus and and so on uh, was distressing for the wider population because it felt like an intensive judgment against them because we were the people who were doing the thing that everyone sort of thought maybe they should be doing if they took God more seriously anyway. Now, in that first circle question, what is the biggest threat to living evangelical faith. Nominalism. The biggest threat by far from 1901 to, uh, to the 2000s or just before that was nominalism. It was a whole country that could cite its baptisms, its liturgy, its church attendance, its uh, associations with Christian things as a reason for not knowing God. And so we needed to get past that and ask people if they really knew the Lord. And as some people in this room uh, will remember and recognize, when people did become Christian, a lot of the heavy lifting had already been done by the culture. Because taking Christianity seriously was the thing that they weren't doing. And when you did do it, then you had been to Sunday school on average. You had wrote, learnt scripture. 
you had come to understand the, the sexual ethic was the sexual ethic that you looked at and couldn't quite pull off but were, uh, were kind of positively disposed to as the thing you would do if you really were taking God seriously. Now, from the late 1960s to the 1980s, or maybe a bit later than that, the churches began uh, what I call the battle for relevance. Because in the 1960s, things begin to change, and Christian leaders, perceptive Christian leaders, saw that the relevance of the Christian churches was under threat. So Edwardian modes of church life, based on the idea of the parish and stable populations uh, of a roughly Christian consensus, that all began to become unstuck as the culture rapidly changed. And so movements such as the Jesus people, the megachurch movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, the church growth movement, the homogeneous unit principle, the missional community movement, uh, the approach of the modern AFES, even a tract like Two Ways to Live, all of them in some way were responding to the changed environment where the catechesis wasn't done by the culture, uh, where the consensus was beginning to fall down, and when we were coming to grips with the fact that we were moving into a post-Christian era. Now, as an aside, I want to give you something for free. It's called the Shiner Rule of Historically Generous Judgments. Uh, the rule is as follows. If at any point you're about to exercise uh, judgment against your ancestors, first pause and ask the question, what was happening 10 years before that is the thing to which they are responding? Uh, that's the way uh, you get generous judgments. For example... It is easy from 2019 to look back with judgment at those who practice abstinence, who were teetotalers and who avoided alcohol and pronounce them as judgmental, legalistic, exegetically unhinged and world-denying. Uh, the torturous exegetical gymnastics that tried to argue for the non-alcoholic meaning of the word uh, oinos, uh, the wowserism, the rejection of God's creational goods and so on. That may all be true and a fair Judgment, but the China rule of historically generous judgment says, what were they responding to? And it turns out, in the case of teetotalerism, it is a massive, was a massive and pervasive abuse of alcohol in the wider society. So it turns out that drinking rates in the 19th century were five times as high as they are today. In Australia, in the first half of the 20th century, the abuse of alcohol was ubiquitous and costly, especially for the poor, especially for women and girls, especially in working class communities. It turns out that in the last uh, 50, uh, 40, 30 years, drinking rates have dropped dramatically in our culture, which is probably part of the context for our more relaxed attitude to these things. But to this day, in places such as Africa and Latin America uh, and in indigenous communities, evangelical and Pentecostal missions continue this trend. Men, before they are converted, drink and gamble the entire family's money. The gospel comes in, men give up the booze and the gambling, money floods back into the family. Uh, men become better husbands and fathers, which means that women get educated and girls uh, grow up in, under very different circumstances from what they would have been before the gospel arised, uh, before the gospel was received. All these things are measured by non-Christian, secular uh, anthropologists and sociologists. It is remarkable. 
So can you find poorly argued, exegetically unsound and legalistic cases for not drinking alcohol? Of course you can. But the next time you sit down to a glass of Pinot Noir, spare a thought for what that generation was responding to. Uh, It might also uh, reflect, uh, we think it reflects our better exegesis, uh, maybe the drop in drinking rates in Australia, maybe a better theology of creation or freedom in Christ. But it could also represent our detachment from those working class and Indigenous communities in which alcohol is still abused and in which total abstinence might be a great stand uh, for the gospel. Anyway, how do we end up on that topic? Uh, Well, because in a similar way, we pass judgment on movements of seeker sensitivity, contemporary Christian music, the relaxation of liturgical forms, the Jesus people and so on. And before we do, take a moment to ask, what were they responding to? And the truth is they were responding in the 60s, 70s and 80s to a form of church life and church witness that was on the whole hopelessly outflanked and outgunned and increasingly unable to reach the culture in which it found itself. Right into the 1980s, for example, in the Diocese of Sydney, there was a vigorous debate over whether the energy and resources of that diocese should go mainly to the nominal Anglicans uh, who named that church but did not participate uh, in its life, or to the wider Christian culture that the younger generation of leaders rapidly perceived was walking away from all forms of nominalism. The battle of relevance was crucial and needed to be fought, and much of what we do now and take for granted is possible because of the hard-fought victories of our forebears. Now, where have we got to? The observation is that there's been a uh, renewal of interest in liturgy and sacraments and personal devotions and so on in the last 10 years. I'm saying that needs to be understood in context because I think the context for that movement is that the battle for relevance has largely been fought and won. Now, when I say that, I don't say that Australia has largely been won. Of course, that's not true. But the battle, the idea that you'd have to argue that we use relevant language, that we don't wear distinctive clerical clothing, uh, that we yield and bend around us so that all people may hear the gospel. Because that battle was so successfully won, we stand on the shoulders of those who won it for us. Indeed, today, the average pastor probably has more tattoos than the average member of the population. And that may well be fine. Uh, in terms of cultural consumption, my guess is that if you compare the average Netflix viewing history of a Christian and a non-Christian, you couldn't spot the difference, and that probably is not fine. Uh, The battlefront today is not so much the battle for relevance, but the battle for resilience. You see, we now find ourselves as outside that circle, outside that roughly Christian nation outside the consensus, and that requires resilience. And my argument is that the rebirth of interest in liturgy and spiritual disciplines and so on, whether it's good or bad, comes in that context, in the deeply felt need to find the habits and formative patterns that make us resilient. I think that's true within the church, and I think it's also true outside the church as a quiet vote of no confidence in secularism. 
I think uh, the way this trend has moved into, you know, uh, uh, Alain de Botton writing a book called Religion for Atheists or, or uh, Jordan Peterson writing The Twelve Rules for Life represents a vote against the listlessness, the disorder, the aimlessness and the sheer unrelenting loneliness of secularism. Compared to the 1950s when our uh, Christianity gave us cultural rhythms of work and rest, of a universally observed Sabbath, of a pattern of family meals, and of a deep sense of connection to the local neighbourhood, we now have 24-hour shopping, Sundays that look suspiciously like every other day, and disordered lives where you can be watching a cat video at work at 2 o'clock in the afternoon or replying email from the bath at 10 o'clock on a Saturday evening. The productivity literature of Silicon Valley is full of advice that has been raided from the Christian tradition. Full of advice that is secretly longing uh, for the Sabbath, for the patterns of work and rest uh, that are our heritage. Hipsters have moved into areas so that they can walk everywhere, so that they can know their locality, so that they can use the same local shops, aka they've decided entirely to adopt a kind of parody of life in the 1950s. Uh, Alan de Potton's written uh, Religion for Atheists, I have mentioned. I mentioned also the rise of the atheist church movement in London, where atheists gather together on Sundays, literally in churches, literally to sing lame songs like imagined by John Lennon, and to do church-style fellowship. We used to think that people liked Jesus, but they didn't like the church. It seems that it's the other way around. They like the church, they just don't like Jesus. So here it is, the observation there is a move toward re-embracing what looks like a fairly traditional form of churchiness and liturgy and piety. The hypothesis is that represents the end of the battle for relevance and the beginning of the battle for resilience, as well as a vote of no confidence in the meaninglessness and disorder and loneliness of secular culture. The observation might be incorrect or the hypothesis might not stand, but if it does, I think what it changes is not our reaction to those things. They may be good or bad for the cause of the gospel, but an understanding of the symptom of which they are, of the cause of which they are a symptom, so that we can ask the question uh, what is causing that, and how does the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ address it? Amen.